Bounty hunting is a complicated profession, which is why we are here to discuss the Disney Plus series, The Mandalorian, which just wrapped its first season run. My name is Dan Morin, and I am joined this week by a very special guest, uh, who I would say needs no introduction, but she needs some introduction, because this is her first time not only on a podcast on the Incomparable Network, but I believe on a podcast of any kind at all. Uh, so I would like to introduce to all of you my very special guest for this week, my wife, Kat Benish. Hello. Hi, honey. How are you? Good. <laughs> Immediately made this awkward. I thought we were going to pretend we're stranger off the street, giving my, you know, very <laughs> candid opinions about The Mandalorian. Uh, I, we can do that if you want. I can just say, uh, we have never met before, have we? <laughs> no, <laughs> definitely not. Uh, please pick a number between one and ten. Uh, no, uh, you know, so we have been watching all of this together, actually. Uh, and so I'm interested to hear you uh, talk a little bit in general about your your thoughts about the Mandalorian as a whole this season, and, and of course about you know how you got into Star Wars and your Star Wars background because I know you have a you have a pretty <laughs> you have a dubious <laughs> honor I think in our household. Right, I always joke that uh, I think one of the main reasons Dan married me is I am probably the only person he knows who has seen The Phantom Menace more times in theaters than him. I think i got to eight before i realized it perhaps wasn't a good movie <laughs> it only took me five so um it's the the only place in our in our life where maybe i was ahead of you on something <laughs> <laughs> um yeah no I, we've been watching this together and i think dear readers who listen to this podcast i've probably actually heard a lot of my thoughts as, as dan has probably carried them forward to, to the show um i mean honestly i think we have a very similar love of this show largely because i think we both are big believers that Small stories are better stories because it lets you focus on the human elements rather than Avenger 17 where you have 20 characters and everything's going to blow up. It's like, no, I just want to care about the people. I want a small story that we can follow and really focus on sort of the emotional depth. Um, And I think really like the sparse narrative. The fact that we have a very few number of characters, um, only a couple named characters every episode. Um, It's just been a really beautiful, fun story. And... Yeah, and I mean, obviously, with the callbacks to the Westerns, and it's been really fun to watch the Star Wars universe play in all these different genres. Um, so very excited we're going to see more episodes. Uh, very excited that's been renewed for a second season. Uh, and probably, I think, the best Star Wars out there right now. Not that there's that much out there, but for the moment, it's fantastic. Well, I mean, not that there's much that, that much out there, you say, but at the same time, we just did have our uh, episode nine. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I know. All right. Well, we won't go into that too much. I want to avoid spoilers for people who haven't seen Rise of Skywalker yet, but I think we are both, you know, very pro Mandalorian and perhaps more mixed on episode nine. Um, it was good for what it was. Yeah, sure. It, it tells a very different type of story, right? Like, that's, that's I think, what you're trying to get at. It's like, right. the smaller scale is interesting, and it's a thing that we haven't seen much of in Star Wars medium, because a lot of the stuff focuses on the big overarching stories of good and evil. Right, and I think it's good and evil, very black and white. What I'm enjoying more about where Star Wars is going now, particularly with The Mandalorian, is playing around in the gray space and praying around with the, the questions of uh, morality. Right. And I think I read at some point a tweet that one of the reasons The Mandalorian is so great is it goes back to aliens feeling alien, right? You're on the edge here. You're on the fringe. You're not really sure who the good guys are. I mean, clearly the Empire is bad, but everything else is very gray. Um, Carl Weathers is a great example of that, mm-hmm, too. And it's, mm-hmm. it's, that's been really fun of dancing around this questions of the Mandalorian sort of shit. I mean, this, this, this entire arc that we see that we close with this episode has all been going from essentially the bounty hunter to now essentially a father figure mm-hmm. uh and with that you were mentioning well jumping way ahead but the, the last shots there mimicking the first shots of of 
being rescued in the with the jetpack. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll we'll get a little bit into that as we uh, talk through this episode, which I think we'll uh, kick off now. So this is uh, chapter eight of The Mandalorian entitled Redemption. One of only two chapters to not have a the in front of it, not including the first chapter, which didn't have a title. Um, And so we open with basically a continuation of exactly where we left off last week with our two biker scouts Mm. picking up the child and zooming back. And then we get what's very interesting. I think a scene unlike anything we have seen in this show so far, which is basically almost like a two minute skit. Um, And somebody online or maybe in one of the slacks mentioned that it feels very much like... um, the uh, the the troops shorts i don't know if you watch those ever oh yeah, yeah. i haven't seen those in years I yes know. yes 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 mid 90s um uh i want to say kevin rubio was the guy who made those uh, i remember watching them like downloaded off the internet when that was like a really early thing that you could do uh and just the sort of it was the cops parodies yeah exactly uh and it definitely has that feel as the two biker scouts argue they squabble about like uh, you know can i can i see the thing and he's like no i you can't see it like and they're bringing it back to the moff gideon they're worried because he's like apparently just killing people left and right which we don't see i know you were a little miffed about that there are some plot continuity issues but i was willing to go along with it for the narrative the bit is good right like the it's a funny. funny bit and like it's totally plausible we know imperial like discipline often involves just murdering random people like that's a very vader management technique uh, i don't know if you want to discuss the management styles and effectiveness thereof i mean machiavelli would say it was a fear is better than love or something along those lines completely butchering that one but no it's great i mean I-, I thought the the shooting match was a little a little much but still really funny just I, really funny I, it was very funny a because obviously we always comment that the stormtroopers can't hit the broadside of a a sandcrawler except only imperial stormtroopers are so (laughs) precise Uh, and B it does set up stuff for later on for why they are ineffectual uh, in various places and I think the argument being like maybe their blasters are just like really cheaply made um, because almost immediately after they have this argument back and forth about the child we get the uh, appearance of IG-11 who explains that he is this nurse droid for the child and one of them tries to shoot him is it a shoot? Is he doing a warning shot, or is he actually trying to shoot him? It's unclear because he misses. That's actually a really interesting idea. That in fact, the supply chain of the empire at this day and age, like, has degraded such that because you're trying to arm so many people, and because they're essentially a largely disposable army, why give them better blasters? That's a really sort of charitable view of stormtroopers. Thank you. I was trying. I, I really want. I want the sympathy of the stormtroopers. <laughs> Um, so we have IG-11 basically dispatches them. He takes the baby and hops on a sewer, uh, sewer bike, hops on a speeder bike and rides into town with it. Uh, meanwhile, back in the bar, we have our cornered Mandalorian, Cara Dune and Grief Karga. Um, they are, uh, deciding to get out of town. Seems like a good idea. Uh, there, there's no other way out. So they're looking for the sewers. And meanwhile, the Imperials are setting up an E-Web blaster and they realize they are trapped. Uh, this is uh, our introduction, really. We saw him last week, but this is our, our real first chance of getting an idea of Moff Gideon, um, who, as it turns out, is extremely well-informed. Uh, yes. He knows all about our heroes and many things that we don't know about our heroes. So, for example, we know Kara Dune's full name is Kara Cynthia Dune, and we learn that she is from Alderaan. Well, I thought that was, uh, you and I were talking briefly about this. I thought that was a really interesting choice because I think we've also spent a lot of time trying to figure out the timeline for all of this, mm-hmm. which raises a lot of questions since this is what, 
five, seven years after Return we of the think Jedi? think it's five years after Return of the Jedi. And how much time between A New Hope to Return of the Jedi? Uh, three and a half-ish years. So ten years. So likely... Eight to ten years, yeah. Kara was likely an adult when Alderaan was destroyd yeah. I think Princess Leia has the classic line of, Alderaan's a peaceful planet, we have no weapons there. Which raises a lot of questions for me about how does a shock trooper come out of essentially a pacifist planet? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm, I'm hoping in the next season we'll actually learn more around that background. I think there's a lot of interesting ways they could take that. But I thought that was a really interesting choice that, that could have a lot to sort of untangle there. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly possible that she, in the, in the wake of the destruction of Alderaan, perhaps joined up with the Rebel Alliance and, you know, decided to work out her anger issues right. on the Imperials. We've seen she she has no soft spot for Imperials. Like, she wasn't even ready to join up with Mando until he's like, oh, it's not just some local warlord. They're, They're Imperials. Imperial. And she's like, done. I'm in. I'm, I'm in. in. Well, it's also interesting if you take that, too. I just think we saw, I was paying more attention this time, her only, oh, that's unfair to say, but her regular solution to things is just to shoot it. <laughs> so the grate, yep. she shoots it. The boat, she shoots it. The droid, she shoots it. That's like that's true. literally three times out of three. Her solution to the problem is shoot it with a blaster. It's not a bad. No, it's, it's it's her approach. Uh, we also learn. I'll come back. We'll come back to the Mandalorian because I think he's the most interesting one. But we also, I love this little tidbit that we learned that Grief Karga is a disgraced magistrate. Uh, I love that. I don't know. Like he's just some some like local judge who just decided, eh, bounty hunting. That's a better. It's a better part of the system to be in. He doesn't seem as phased by the rest of them it's about his history being known. I assume perhaps it's not as much of a secret. Mm. Um, he's mainly spending his time drinking that like blue liquid. Uh, I'm with him. I'm with Carl Weathers always. Um, but perhaps most interestingly, we learned uh, our our Mandalorian friend who we have been following for eight episodes and we never had a name for has a name. It is Din Jaren. Um, and we learned a lot here because we um, we learned that not only does Moff Gideon know who he was, uh, Moff Gideon also describes the uh, the Night of a Thousand Tears and the Siege of Mandalore, mm. which we don't know much about. Now, we've talked in previous episodes of this podcast just about the fact that the Mandalorian's mythology has been fleshed out in Clone Wars and Rebels, but there is still a big blank space post-Rebels, which basically takes us up to A New Hope. So we don't know anything, basically, from A New Hope to now about what the Mandalorians... When does the purge happen? Is that before? We don't know. Interesting. Uh, Because I think as of the last place we have seen the Mandalorians, which was on Rebels with Sabine, they were still, like, they they were fighting off people, but they were not... The culture was not entirely destroyed. Like, her father had worked for the Empire designing weapons and stuff like that. So there's a big empty space that we assume has been filled by this. Um, perhaps as the Empire seized tighter control, they decide the Mandalorians were a threat and essentially purge them. Um, we also learn that uh, um, Moff Gideon was so a uh, Imperial, I believe it's Imperial Security Bureau, which ISB, is yeah, yeah the, the spies, like secret police, um, and that he was supposedly executed for war crimes. Cara, Cara Dune says he was supposedly ex- executed for war crimes. Um, uh, the Mandalorian hasn't heard his name spoken since he was a child and says the only place that it would be known is in the registers of Mandalore, or at least any only place it would be written down. Yeah, and I have a minor nit about this one, too, okay. if I can share my nit. Again, sure. lo- overall story, love love the Mandalorian, but it goes from no one has spoken this name, and yet when you give them this badge and give them my name, they'll know who I am. And then the uh, forger 
also uses the name immediately. So it's gone from like the most incredible secret that none of us have heard to, well, everyone knows it. It's just only written down in one place. And there's like a slight incongruency there. Well, I, there might be. But at the same time, I, I feel like we're not given the names of any of the other Mandalorians that we see. Mm-hmm. So perhaps it's a case where they know each other's names, but those names are generally not spoken and they're certainly not recorded anywhere. And so it's sort of a oral tradition, maybe, or something like that. I don't know. There's a lot of of tradition and ceremony mm-hmm. in all the things the Mandalorians do. And that ties in with the other thing that we learn here, where, you know, we discussed a lot, like, there is a, a planet of Mandalore. It does right. seem like there is a, a, or was a race of Mandalorians, but that it's not. Karis is here, it's not a race. race. And we're told it's a creed, which is, are these, like, a, a sect of Mandalorians, or they sort of come out of this diaspora after the purge. We're still a little fuzzy on that. Well, that's something I think we commented on the first. I don't know if this came the podcast before. This idea that the Mandalorians don't take off their helmets mm-hmm, is mm-hmm. clearly not true in Rebels. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And so, trying to think through, does this, to your point, yeah, does this come after the purge and all the Mandalorians adopt this as a as a means of survival, or is this a pretty sort of unique um what do they call it a covert a sect of some yeah. sort of the mandalorian that's unique from the different but i do like the idea that they've had to evolve in order to survive and that includes taking on foundlings to keep sort of keep right the faith. right i you know i can't help but draw some parallels and this is not exact but like thinking back to you know uh, my jewish heritage for oh, yeah. example like a diaspora and and you enact things that are more likely to keep your numbers up, right? Like that's part of the reason I believe behind the fact that Jewish lineage is traced generally through the mother uh, is sort of like it tends to expand your ranks right. of of people who are who are considered Jewish. Um, but in a similar way, with the Mandalorians, since they're you know, I, I think you're totally right. He says he was adopted, he was saved, he's raised in the fighting corps, and then he swore the creed. Um, and yeah, we get into that a little bit later, but I think that was really interesting and we don't know. There's a lot of sort of backstory and fuzziness that still could be worked out and explored, but I like that it's not all entirely info dumped here. We get just enough to tantalize. Yeah. It's sort of like we're learning about it as Kara and Carl are. Yeah. Kara and Carl. That's my favorite sitcom. Should be known right away that I cannot remember (laughs) actors' names or characters' names. You got them both. You just mix and match them. Um, I also like Gideon here who uh, explains when they ask if they can trust him. So he gives them an opportunity to sort of negotiate. And he says he can't, you can't trust him, but he will basically act in his own self-interest and they can trust that. And he gives them until nightfall to uh, make their decision. I like that too. That nice bit of honesty of, uh, again, making that, it, it, what I've enjoyed about this is making the characters with even brief interactions as three-dimensional as possible. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He's very fleshed out. He feels very, he's got a good character to him. Um, we also, at this point, get the full flashback, as oh, we yeah. alluded to, where we've seen bits and pieces of the Mandalorian being rescued or, or being uh, his family being killed and attacked by droids, which is why he hates droids. And this time, when we see the cellar door open and the droid standing over him, the droid is killed uh, by a Mandalorian, which also provides a nice parallel to episode one, where he saves the child right. by shooting IG-11. So very same, like, you know, IGL, the baby's looking out, sees a droid, and then the droid is killed off screen by a Mandalorian who takes him on. So there's s- strong parallels, and it also further reinforces why the Mandalorian mm-hmm. saved the child in the first place. I think it was also interesting, too, to see here the parallel to Jen Erso in mm. uh, Rogue One. Mm-hmm. Rogue One, right? That same thing of getting put into the cavern, hugging your parents goodbye. I guess slightly, her situation slightly different. Um but then getting adopted by the people who rescue you. Yep. Um, 
It was also very interesting, too, this idea that I think to most, and this comes up, I think, later, too, in the description of the evil wizard army or whatever they call the Jedi. Sorcerers. Sorcerers, there we go. Um, Of the, I think many people would be intimidated and terrified by a Mandalorian army, yet he sees them as saviors because they are the ones who rescued him. Yeah. And I think you also made that comment that was really interesting here, too, is do you want to talk about the fact that they're all wearing the same uniform? Yeah, the Mandalorians we've seen now are very piecemeal. All their stuff is sort of cobbled together. They all look very different. They have different paint schemes. They have different equipment. All the Mandalorians who show up there, they're wearing, essentially, I, I was checking the second time through, they're wearing the same armor, right? It looks the same. They all have the little Boba Fett antenna. They all have the jetpacks. They're all blue. Mm. They're all using the same guns, pretty much. Like, it, it seems like a much more regimented, uh, organized group, which, again, supports the idea that this was before the Mandalorians were disbanded, right? Because this would have been 25-ish years ago. Prior, because we see the people who they're fighting off are essentially the droid army from right. the prequels. So this all predates, and that would work with the age of our Mandalorian who is in his 30s or 40s. So this happened clearly before the real rebellion and the Empire, perhaps even before the rise of the Empire, if this was during the Clone Wars. Um, but yeah, so at that point, the Mandalorians were perhaps more of a cohesive unit mm-hmm. or a planet that we've seen in other places. And I thought that was really interesting, subtle. Really yeah, interesting. Yeah, they did a lot of nice things like that. And again, really looking forward to learning more about the Mandalorians. Uh, so back in the bar, the Mandalorian gets and finally gets in touch with IG-11 uh, after he can't reach Quill. And um, he tells IG-11 tells him that Quill is dead. The Mando immediately assumes that IG-11 has done something to Quill, too, because this is... Uh, you know, his distrust of droids, obviously. But IG-11 is here to save the day as he zooms into town on his bike, shooting troopers left and right as Baby Yoda cackles. But not the Jawa. The Jawa is safe. The Jawas are safe. He knows what he's doing. His 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 job is to protect. Uh, and there's a great scene that you really loved where uh, as he zooms in to where all the stormtroopers are and they start shooting at him, he's got the baby strapped to his front and his little, uh, you know, handmade baby Bjorn there. <laughs> and he spins his torso around to but then his arms the come right back over right it goes back to i think the comment you made on either episode two or episode one the idea that the just thinking about the ship the struts mm-hmm. and like thinking through the how mechanical motion should work even right. in cgi and the same thing the fact that you would turn and spin like what type of bearings and sockets are in that droid i thought it was just it was a very cool exhibit of engineering and that protectionism and and my favorite yeah the same sort of thing like the fact that we never so we saw IG88 in the original movies mm. in the background but you never see him do anything you never see him move and so you're he kind of looks awkward right and you'd be like oh how effective could he be and the answer is like but what if he's super effective because of the fact that he's not he is so ungainly and not designed like a person and i think that's it's a you're totally right it's a great example of how how that would work. Of course, he spins around and shoots things. And we obviously, we saw that demonstrated way back in the first episode, too. Uh, there's a lot of callbacks in here yes. to that first episode, as I know you pointed out, um, especially here as, you know, they, they see IG-11 come into town and uh, Mandalorian and Kara go outside and start, uh, or sorry, Mandalorian and Kreef Karga go outside and start, you know, shooting up. And um, the Mandalorian grabs the heavy blaster that they've been threatened with. Uh, I, incidentally, I just love the E-Web call out here since that is a... I I don't know if it's ever I don't think it's ever mentioned on screen or anywhere else, but it is the blaster that's used in Empire Strike Back, where the Snowtroopers set it up at one point to shoot the Falcon, and um, it's mentioned in the Star Wars role playing game, which is where I knew it from. So I enjoyed that that little call out there. (laughs) Um, 
So the uh, there's the callback here as he works with IG-11, just like in that showdown. He grabs the big gun. He shoots a bunch of people. Um, all of that is sort of calling back to that first episode. Um, troopers come into the bar and Kara dispatches them. And Gideon sort of strides in, takes a shot at the Mando. It doesn't really work out well. It bounces off his helmet or something. And then he decides that the smarter move is to shoot the power pack attached to the gun, which takes the Mando down. Uh, Kara drags him into the bar. Uh, wants to... So I think the power pack was a particularly interesting moment because, again, this idea of fleshing out the moth as a a character, like, that was such a great example of him essentially being a precision warrior, right? When everyone else is shooting, like, focusing on that to cause more damage, I think, was just a really, again, nice touch to show that this emphasizes the danger of this character mm-hmm, that he's mm-hmm. very smart and very precise right and he's not a stormtrooper right the stormtroopers are like you're saying the stormtroopers are all just shooting at the mandalorian because he's the bad guy and the moff is like well that's not working you know let me and you see him so he calculates right, right. like he's and very- that's and that, that calculation is an incredibly dangerous and uh, as we jump ahead to the end i'm looking forward again seeing him the the connection to the mandalorians yeah fascinating absolutely fascinating uh, so we drew Kara drags the Mandalorian into the bar, um, wants to heal him, but he won't take the helmet off. Instead, he gives her his uh, Mandalorian sigil, tells her to give it to the Mandalorians if they can find them, and they'll protect the child. Uh, meanwhile, Moff Gideon calls in a flame trooper uh, to start burning them out of the bar. The flame trooper, as I was pointing out to you, uh, it has a very uh, look, very reminiscent of Clone Wars troopers. He's got the red, like sort of uh, painted down. Uh, very. Very creepy looking, yeah. very distinct looking, which I like. Um, and as he shoots his flamethrower into the bar, we get our Baby Yoda force moment of the episode where... Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> That's what <breaks> their minds. <laughs> uh, where he catches the fire, sends it back at the trooper, and basically explodes him. Um, uh, the IG unit stays with the Mando, Kara as Kara, and Grief Kara take the baby... Um, and the IG unit basically heals him, convincing him to take off his helmet uh, by saying that no, you know, when, when the Mandalorian protests that no living thing has seen me without the helmet, he points out that he's not really alive. So he takes the helmet off. And we could see our very handsome Pedro Pascal for the first time in this episode. Uh, he's a little bit worse for wear. I was wondering if they were ever going to take off the helmet in the entire show. I was, it was going to be interesting to see if they did it. And they did. Yeah. yeah and I, 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 I bet with myself. I liked that he, it, it was always going to be a some sort of challenge for him, right? Like, I always thought it was going to come down to maybe him, his options would be like, well, you can keep the helmet on or you can save the child, right? And in this case, it was less about the child than it was about him because it ends up being this thing that he is his worst enemy in some ways, right? Or this Mm -hmm. thing that he had so much hatred and antipathy for that's trying to save him in the same way the Mandalorian saved him from the droids. Uh, the Mandalor- the droids gets to save him this time, and he he makes this this huge concession by sort of taking the helmet off, even if it's sort of within the within the, the rules. rules. Well, and this is like a very nice sort of Macbeth moment, right? Uh, born a no woman. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, I full credit to him. I think he did some excellent voice acting this entire this entire episode, and I think later when he's just both the sadness and the uh, the dealing with the pain. I think he did a really nice job of carrying that emotion with, with the voice acting. Yeah, there's that Eowyn, too, the Eowyn moment. Oh, yeah, yeah. I am, I am no living thing, you Which know. J.R. Tolkien totally got that from Shakespeare. Sure, absolutely. I mean, steal from the best. That's my... Um, uh, yeah, and, and he does a funny moment here, too, where the droid uh, IG-11 tells him that he has damage to his central processing unit. 
And he's like, my brain? is That was a joke. It was designed to put you at ease. And he kind of laughs at it a little bit, even though he's clearly in pain, um, which is nice. It's a bonding moment, right? Uh, so he sprays him with some Bacta. And meanwhile, down in the sewers, uh, Kara and Grief are trying to f- muddle their way through the tunnels. And they uh, meet back up with the Mandalorian and the IG unit. And they uh, basically try to figure out where they're going. And they decide they need the Mandalorian's help because... Uh, otherwise, they'll just get gunned down. So, Minor again, knit here again. Love it. Totally but fine. The the fact that he, I don't think they did a nice job explaining that they even did in the flashback at the beginning, right? That he expects the covert to have left. Yes. After that, and so I can understand if he was looking for a trace of them or help, but the fact that he expects the covert there to help escort them out does again seem to not fully match because yeah. they even had the conversation. It's time for you to leave. Right, right. Yeah, there is there is something awkward in there where it's yeah, they're all they're they're blown essentially, right? And they're supposed to run away. Um and there's not really a reason for them to expect there, but again, they're kind of in they're kind of in dire straits too, so maybe it's like kind of a last ditch Who episode. Knows? Maybe, maybe we'll one, get one lucky. Them. Yeah. Um so they find their way to the covert and the first thing they find is a stack of helmets, <laughs> which is I thought was one of the best twists in this episode since yeah. I didn't really know what to expect there and of course it seems like many of them have been killed. Um, Mandalorian blames Grief Karga at first, even though he denies responsibility. Um, and a lot of that seems to be rooted in his anger about this, obviously. Uh, but it turns out the armor is still alive, and she tells them that the Imperials killed all of them after um, their sort of shootout with the Bounty Hunters Guild. They, the, the, the Imperials arrived, yeah. Yeah. Um, some may have escaped. We don't know. Maybe off-planet. Meanwhile, she is salvaging their armor. Um, and so now we get he gets a chance to fill in the armor on what's going on, and they talk a little bit about Baby Yoda and who it is, and she mentions that she is familiar with the Force as something that was used by this race of sorcerers called the Jedi, who Mandalore the Great fought. Uh, but she says that though the baby's kind were enemies, the baby is not uh, because it it is a foundling, and it is uh, our Mandalorian friend's responsibility to take care of it. I think she might be my my favorite character in the entire element, where she's just sort of like telling him to go on and she'll just stay here. And it's the way, it's the creed. Her just matter-of-factness and pure utility is just, it's, it's great. Yeah, I agree. I, I think she she is our, she's the closest thing we have to a guide to yeah. what is what is the creed and how does it operate because she knows all the rules, right? She um, basically explains that you're you're essentially a proxy father for the the kid. She gives him his signet, the mug, Mudhorn, and says that they are a clan of two. Um, and then she uh, also gives him a jetpack, which he's wanted since that rising uh, phoenix. Yeah, third or fourth episode. He's not super great at the jetpack apparently because he doesn't hasn't had one before. And she tells him it's going to be a little unpredictable essentially until you've trained and done your drills. Um, but I think it was also the point where she tells, hey, she's unhurried through the entire mm-hmm, thing, which mm-hmm. is just, it's just, again, a really nice character choice. Um, and then I think the fact as well, that it was the point when she tells him to restock his munitions that I think you and I turned to each other and said, man, this would be a great video game. Yeah, that's right. It feels like, ah, yes, we've had our cutscene. Uh, now, you know, ammo up and uh, head out to fight the stormtroopers. Uh, this is the twice the Mandalorian asks her to go with them, and she refuses, mm-hmm. saying that this sort of this is her place. Um, and then uh, she stays behind, and we get 
uh, as they run off, we get an amazing action sequence. So good. Uh, where uh, the stormtroopers come in and surround her, and she's just using the hammer and the tongs from her forge, and she just beats the crap out of them. And I know there was one thing you particularly loved in there. Uh, Which the shattering of the oh that was my yeah I, I love, love the, the shattering, shattering where she shatters a stormtrooper oh the helmet. shot the shot the that it, it does two things one the, it was a great visual of the stormtrooper flying into the forge and essentially disintegrating yeah which goes to the whole idea of no disintegration <laughs> um but also it just speaks to the heat of that forge and the fact that whenever it, it, I think it also heightens the mythism or the excitement of Beskar because it shows that Beskar does not disintegrate in that and just really plays out because mm. the stormtrooper is totally destroyed. And the Beskar doesn't just speaks to the sort of the, the actual material strength of Beskar and the fact that it's working in such a high heat. Right. And they compare it to Stormtrooper armor that right. is essentially very shatterable and meltable, which goes back to our supply, supply chain. It comes back around. <laughs> and I also love that, again, the fact in it, I think it also speaks to the Mandalorians. Um, she does all of that with the tools of her trade, right? Mm-hmm. You know, we had the fighting core and whatever her core is in the sense of that no matter what a Mandalorian is, that they are true experts in what they're using and that she can use it to craft things and make things, which I think is very evocative of Sabine and her all of her graffiti art. Mm-hmm. And then also just to cause cr- total mayhem. <laughs> um, and uh, as we don't see her, she gets out of that unscathed. So I think there's a good chance that we will see her return at some point down the road. And uh, credit to Emily Swallows, the actress, uh, who plays? I don't know if she's in the suit for the f- fight scenes. I'm guessing it might be a stunt double, but she's still she like like Pedro Pascal does a, a real yeoman's work here of the uh, conveying everything with her voice yeah. uh, and her her movements, her body language, and I really I love it. I'm glad for that character to exist. Uh, so we move on to the lava boat, which our team finds. Uh, they can't free it at first, but then Kara, as you said, shoots it because that's her answer to everything. And they hop in and start flowing downstream. They think the droid is fried, but then it turns out it's awake. And it's a, in another, like, little e- delightful Easter egg weird moment. It's essentially an R2 unit with arms and legs, which I thought was awesome. It just, like, I just picture this super Terrifying. jacked R2 unit. Um, and it's a, it's a gondolier. Uh, and it's going to take them down river. Um, they think they've made it out alive and all safe and everything. Unfortunately, when they spot the uh, the light at the end of the tunnel, the light at the end of the tunnel <laughs> is surrounded by stormtroopers. So this leaves them with a bit of a dilemma. Um, you know, they try to stop the boat, and again, Kara shoots the droid. Doesn't really help them. Uh, IG Eleven decides that the only way out is for him to sacrifice himself using his self destruct, which again we saw way back in the first episode. But in order to do that, he needs to have the Mandalorian essentially swear that the child will be safe, so he can. Uh, discard disregard his primary directive and, and again, so on this it was again really interesting again full credit to the writers the thought that goes into the primary and secondary directives and how they interplay again it was like i appreciated the amount of logic they put into this to make it sort of a constant narrative a narrative that made sense mm-hmm. i agree yeah and i like this scene in particular because having bonded in the in that scene where the ig unit treats the mandalorian He's actually started treating him as a friend. And my yeah. favorite line here, and it's kind of a throwaway thing, is like the, the IG unit says like, well, I'll shoot our way out or something. Uh, and or I'll go out and sort of try to take them down. And, and the um, Mandalorian says, you don't have that kind of firepower, pal. Like, and I just like, it's the first time he addresses the IG mm-hmm. unit as a, as a person, quote unquote, instead of a thing. 
And I really loved that moment. And of course, then when the IG unit says he sacrificed, he'll sacrifice himself. The Mandalorian is, is sad. sad. He claims he's not sad, but the IG unit, he knows sadness when he hears it. Um, and so eventually, you know, they, they decide that's the only way. So the IG unit walks out down the lava field and, uh, and blows himself up, taking out a whole platoon of stormtroopers along the way. And again, I'm impressed by the whatever engineering built that tunnel because that damage probably, or that, that explosion should have damaged the structural integrity of that tunnel. They make them, I mean, if it's got lava throwing, flowing through it, it's pretty it's tough, fair. right? It's fair. What type of engineering they're using? Very good civil engineering. <laughs> Um, they think they're home free, but then a TIE fighter appears and starts shooting at them, and they realize they are outgunned. Uh, my, possibly my favorite moment in this episode, where Carl Weathers says, let's make the baby do the magic hand thing! (laughs) (laughs) And the baby tries, the baby waves at the the TIE fighter. The cooing baby. That was very cute. Yeah, I thought that was hilarious. And then he's like, well, I'm out of ideas. Uh, so as he comes around, the Mandalorian decides to use his newfound jetpack to jump up and tether on to the TIE fighter, uh, which is pretty crazy, I think, as plans go. Uh, Gideon tries to shake him off, or it is Gideon, of course, flying the TIE fighter, uh, tries to shake him off. The Mandalorian manages to get, uh, sort of onto the wing and plant a couple bombs, uh, and then, uh, jumps off and the TIE fighter wing blows off as it careens into the desert, but notably doesn't no explode <laughs> which as we all know means well maybe don't don't count your chickens as it were um we get our little denouement with the mandalorian and kara and grief karga um i love again carl weathers explains this place is great now we did we killed all the imperials uh everything's gonna be fine navarro's a wonderful planet you should hang out uh and tries to recruit cara dune uh, there's a little discussion there with Kara mentioned. We know somebody's been looking for Kara. Yeah, I didn't understand the comment about the clerical issue with the chain code. So what she, she mentions in a previous episode that people are looked at. She thinks the Mandalorian, when he first shows up, is looking for her because presumably she has a price on her head hmm. for some reason that we don't know about. She alludes to having done a bunch of stuff in one of the episodes. And I think essentially saying like, yeah, I might be willing to join up, but there's a little paperwork issue with the, you know, people might be looking for me. And he promises, uh, Carl Weathers promised to smooth that over if she wants to sign up with him and tells the Mandalorian that he will have his pick of quarries if he decides to come back to the guild. Uh, but he decides he's going to go off and save the baby. I think what's interesting to the, uh, well, t- two things. The first is the idea that they killed all these Imperial troopers and no one else is going to come out to investigate yeah. that. There's a minor question about that assumption. I'm like, no, no one's going to look for these guys. Uh, and then the idea, I do like uh, Carr's reference of the town being a safe place. And this was another, I think, nice callback to the Western theme of like, mm-hmm. well, partner, I'm going to stick around here, you know, now that the bad guys are gone and clearing out a town. Again, that classic Western trope. Yeah, and, and, and Carl Weathers' comment that the scum and villainy have been washed away and everything is wonderful. Some of my favorite people are bounty hunters, he tells us. Um, no, I think there's a point, though. Like, if they really believe that they killed Gideon and that he was maybe the top of the food chain and because the Empire is so fractured, maybe Turned they do maybe. think like, eh, well, you know, we did this like local regiment or whatever. Probably no one's going to waste their time, assuming he was, in fact, the top of the food chain, the one looking for the child. Well, except that we still don't know why they were we looking for Baby Yoda. Yeah, so there's a, there are some questions unanswered. Um, the Mandalorian takes the Baby Yoda, and they fly away in a shot that does perfectly mirror the Mandalorian's rescuing uh, Din Djarin as a kid. 
uh, as the baby looks down on uh, on its friends being left behind. Um, he returns to the ship. They bury Queel uh, in a cairn. And as they take off, the uh, baby is chewing on something, which turns out to be that Mandalorian signet that he gave him. And the uh, Mandalorian says, why don't, why don't you hang on to that? Never thought uh, I'd see it again. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, too, when the... Um... They're flying away with Baby Yoda's looking down. The shot is the same, but what they're looking back at is different, right? Mm, mm-hmm. So when it's the young Mandalorian, he's looking back at destruction and the death of his family. When it's mm. Baby Yoda, he's looking upon two friends, which is you know kind of evocative yeah. of things are improving in A New Hope. Yeah, there's, there is hope and, and love there instead of fear and destruction. Yeah, I agree. Um, and then we get our coda, in which the Jawas <gasps> oh, are God. scavenging the TIE fighter until a... A black blade pops out and cuts a hole in the TIE fighter, and Moff Gideon strides out carrying a uh, a black lightsaber, which uh, fans of Clone Wars and Rebels might recognize as a storied weapon called the Darksaber. I think I had literally just made the comment that, man, I, this was a good episode, but it was pretty predictable. And then this happens, <laughs> like, what is going on? Uh, yeah, the Darksaber. So, I mean, if you haven't seen Clone Wars or Rebels, I obviously highly recommend them. There is a lot more than we can probably go through with the history of the Darksaber. But essentially, it's a weapon originally forged by a Mandalorian, the first Mandalorian who is also a Jedi. Um, and... It's, uh, yeah, it's been passed through a lot of different hands. I think it was last seen chronologically in Rebels, mm-hmm. uh, where it was handed over to uh, basically someone who was the, the rightful ruler of Mandalore, or so it was believed at the time. But even that is now five years or so, five to seven years out of date, uh, maybe more so. We don't really know what is going on with that. Well, no, if it was Rebels, then... Eight, I guess. Eight years. Yeah. Well, it's, yes, about the same time, because it happens right before A New Hope, correct? Yeah, right. Right, and that's the same thing. I think that was a nice... I, again, it makes sense. If Gideon was the one who was leading the purge, mm-hmm. um, it would make a lot of sense that he would have it. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm intrigued to see... I mean, it's not a thing that most people can use either, right? Like, it's not a, it's not a weapon for someone who is not trained in some sort of... Uh, fighting style, right? Lightsabers generally wielded by non-force sensitive users are tricky. Um, even though we do see, because we do see Sabine learn how to use it. In a lot Rebels. of non-force, I think the only force user who ever used the dark saber was the original. I mean, I take that back. No, no, you're right. Occasionally it's some of the Sith, some you're right. Um, yeah, well, and it just interesting, it speaks more to Moff Gideon, right? Like, again, we know he's a very disciplined person, a very mm-hmm. calculating person. Fully believe he would take the time to master this weapon, but it does speak to what is, yeah, there's a lot of mystery around him. Like you said, we don't know why he wanted the child. Like, what was his agenda with that? Maybe it had something to do with harvesting the force from the child in some way because oh, of this connection with this. I don't know. Like, that there's like a, a wannabe there. Jedi who's trying to sort of scientifically engineer it yeah or feels like maybe if he can learn how to master it he can amass more power uh you know following the emperor's footsteps maybe uh unclear um but this does sort of lead into the our last sort of discussion point here was just talking about the season two which we now have uh has been confirmed is coming next fall okay um and just sort of what we might see in that i think there are some some indications here where that might be going but like i don't know what do you, what do you think what do you what do you want to see in season two how do you want that to unfold oh that is a big question um 
Well, I think sort of two things off the cuff. These may not be the most important, but two things that are sort of top of mind for me. One is, um, again, in this new world of Star Wars, their comfort in genre shifting. I wonder if they're going to stay in the Western sort mm-hmm. of tone of the second season if they, if they shift away to something else, which is now becoming a, rather than protecting the baby, trying to quest and find something. Um, I personally hope they stay in the Western tone because I think it's really interesting. Um, but we'll, we'll have to see that. And then the second thing is, and uh, this didn't come up earlier, but I think it's also fun to watch, is Baby Yoda is definitely getting older, right? And I think we first noticed in episode seven when there's a shot where you see um, the whites of Baby Yoda's eyes and whereas before, and I think we'd have to go back and watch the first episodes where his eyes were completely black, particularly in this episode, when you look at him, you can see the brown irises and sort of the, the eyes are beginning to fully form. So we can see Baby Yoda essentially growing up. Uh, and I think you and I have also talked about sort of the math of if Baby Yoda is, what, 50 right now? So they say, yeah. So they say, and we know Yoda was 900. And, and apparently trained Jedis for 800 years. So. The next 50 years of Baby Yoda is going to evolve pretty fast. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I think that's interesting to see. I mean, I'm hoping we don't go much too much into surly teenage yeah. Yoda. <laughs> God, um, oh, whatever, Mando. Yeah. Again, I know you gave me this thing, but I just don't care. Uh, this is not the way. Um, How about you? What are you excited to see? Uh, I like that idea. And I think this seems pretty clear that we're heading off on this quest to find Baby Yoda's people. Whether we will or not mm. is an open question, right? Like maybe this is a fool's errand. Maybe this is something that they're going to spend a long time looking for and eventually discover that there is, there's no one left, right? Like we don't know where the baby came from still, uh, how it got in the hands of all those people in episode one. Um, like there's a lot of question how Moff Gideon knew it existed. Um, so maybe there isn't a race of Yodas. Maybe, maybe this is the only one and maybe he's going to have to become, uh, you know, swear himself to becoming a Mandalorian. <laughs> Except though, the forger, the armor doesn't say you have to bring him back to his race. She's clearly mm. setting it up to bring it to the sorcerers. Oh, good point. So I can good imagine point. the Mandalorian basically going to find the Jedi. Jedi. Which at this time of the series is Luke. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting point. I hadn't even considered that because I sort of it was so surprising to me. I think it was fascinating to see how they handle the Jedi in this series, right? Because it's the word Jedi is not uttered until this, the last episode, uh, and most of the rest of the time, nobody knows anything about the Force. Like everybody is kind of befuddled by it, with the exception maybe of Quill, who seems to have some slight inkling that this is a thing. But even Cardoon, who fought in the Rebellion alongside, you know, she mentions Endor at one point, and presumably at least there are stories of Luke Skywalker. You know, later on, Rey, in Episode 7, Rey knows who Luke Skywalker is, thinks he's a myth, but, like, there are stories. Well, this is the interesting thing, too, and I I know movies are interesting, but, like, the idea that the story of, like, exactly to that point, right, that the Jedi are still very much a myth, and there isn't, I don't know, some galactic news source that's reporting right. on jedi as fact or whatever the equivalent of wikipedia is in or snopes in a in the galactic world it's snopes, so, it's, it's snopes. yeah, yeah. snopes.com um to verify what the jedi because everyone who comes across them thinks they are a myth right even though only 20 30 years ago there were at least hundreds of them probably running around but they have been sort of wiped so clean from the slate, probably by the Emperor mm. and the Purge, that people... Misinformation. Yeah, people just think that they were myths at this point. 
um yeah it's interesting i don't know where that's going but uh i looked at I, as to your point about the tone i agree i i hope they continue with the western stuff the structure i think does lend itself as they go around means like more planets that we get to see more people we get to interact with new characters but also the the episodic nature of it means that you can fold in characters that we've seen this season um and tell little self-contained stories as you have an arc in the background so i hope they follow that pattern of sort of like yeah, there's an arc in the background as we're looking for this planet, but each episode tells a different story that is sort of self-contained. Mm-hmm. And I I think to go back to your point at the very beginning of the episode that I think was well-made was I hope they don't fall into that trap of yes. making it need to feel bigger and like more stakes. The, 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 and, and TV, I think the medium of TV helps with that because it lets you tell a smaller story. It doesn't have to be. Everything is riding on this, the fate of the galaxy, etc. I hope they sort of keep that even keel going forward yeah and i think in some ways i was a little sad to see carl and kara as we're calling them uh stay behind that felt a little pat to me but i think it will actually help them keep the stakes smaller yeah by essentially again we made these two friends we made these two friends these two friends are staying on this planet we can come back to them at any point but we're going now we're returning to the core it's almost like a a a flower blooming during the day right it's going to open up all the petals and it's night and it's going to close them all Mm -hmm. back and we get to start next season brand new with our two main characters uh and we just keep it because they literally eliminated everyone else in the story at this point with right. ig being dead and quill being dead um and, well, and car and carl now staying on the planet well it's nice though because it leaves that opportunity of uh i always find delight i love recurring characters because there's a delight when they show up again and you're like oh they're gonna go get cara Dune now like that's gonna be great and then the same thing with moff gideon who like you know, maybe you've forgotten about him by the time the end, like the second season starts and then he'll pop up at some point. And you'll be like, oh, no, that guy, he's been trying to track them. Right. Like it, it gives a little it's a it's a menacing threat that is off screen that you are like waiting yeah. for that shoe to drop. So here's like, I don't know if we can. Can we talk? I know we can't talk about episode nine, but can we talk about Rebels for a second? Sure. Yeah. So how does Rebels end again? Right. It's that's after Return of the Jedi. There's the coda. Yeah, there's a coda that takes place after Return of the Jedi that involves um, Sabine and uh ahsoka tano uh going off to look for ezra right ezra yes and that's after return of the jedi right so there's two we know there's a number speaking of the jedi right yeah. we know there's two ways to go we know luke is still alive but that storyline is very well known at this point and is handled via the new three series i think yeah. it'd be very interesting if if the tv series and i mean rebels is established canon if they go more that role where we'll see teaming up with a live action Sabine and a live action Ahsoka. Um, given uh, given the fact that Dave Filoni has been so tightly integrated in the production of this series and the fact that he loves Ahsoka Tano so much because, you know, that was one of the big reasons obviously he got she got uh, resurrected for Rebels. I would not put it past him. If there is just an opportunity for a, a live action Captain Rex, I will be <laughs> I will be very happy. Uh, lots of possibilities there. I'm only sad that we have to wait basically at least probably another 11 months for this to actually come out. Uh, are there any last thoughts you had you want to, to give before we wrap up here? No. Love the series. I'm so happy. I was a little trepidatious at first of Star Wars moving to the small screen. Uh, and I think it has been, uh, they have found a way to adapt beautifully. I agree. I want more stories like this. I'm looking forward to future uh, episodes and future series that tell this kind of smaller story. I think there's a the future of Star Wars is bright. Um, and I want to thank uh, all of you out there for listening uh, as we covered this first season, The Mandalorian. Uh, your support for a complicated profession, it means a lot to me. I want to thank 
all of my guests this season uh, from episode one all the way up to this episode. And of course, a very special thank you to my special guest this week. My dear wife, Kat Benish. Aw, thanks, babe. Uh, again, thank you all out there for listening. Uh, and we will see you next year. <laughs>